best offering we can bring is our own hearts and lives for Jesus. Before I begin my message today, I want to just provide a ministry update uh, regarding a couple of uh, ministry matters that we share together as a congregation. The first is announcement of uh, what's something I'm really excited about. We are going to begin a Sunday evening worship service beginning April 7. It's going to be at 5 o'clock. And part of the thinking of this is that our junior high youth have their youth meeting from 3.30 to 5 on Sundays. Our senior high youth have their activities from 6.30 to 8 p.m. And in conversation with our youth, it uh, seemed like a good fit to plan a worship service in between their activities that they and their families could attend and that others could attend as well. So we're going to do a 5 o'clock worship service from 5 to 6. From 6 to 6.30 will be a meal time or fellowship time. And uh, this is going to replace the Saturday 5 o'clock service. We will have the Saturday service through March 30th. And then on April 7th, Sunday, we'll begin the 5 o'clock Sunday service. I want to encourage everyone, uh, even if you come to the Sunday morning service, on that particular date, April 7th, would you also come back for the 5 o'clock service and experience it and support it? Uh, We'll also have a spaghetti supper that day on April 7th, right after the service at 6 o'clock. So uh, come on out, and we're looking for some families who then will make that 5 o'clock service their own. Uh, Maybe some families who will then be willing to usher or help out with the service in various ways. So all that begins on April 7. We think this is going to provide a greater opportunity to reach out into our community, to invite uh, young families to take part, Um, just more of an opportunity for those who can't make it on Sunday morning, for whom Saturdays are not a good day. We think this is going to be a good option. So... Uh, make note of that, and please come on April 7th. If for nothing else, come for spaghetti. All right. The other thing is that we are in the process of looking for a teacher who is synodically trained, who would eventually be our kindergarten teacher, but who will start in our preschool in the K prep program. We'll get to know the preschool parents. And hopefully then will be a helpful bridge in helping some of those families have their preschooler continue on with our kindergarten program here on this campus. So we're going to extend a call to a teacher, but we need names of synodically trained, rostered uh, uh, teachers from around the country. You may know somebody who's just a great kindergarten teacher. Please give us that name. You can give it to me or to uh, Debbie Osman, our preschool director and uh, we'll be glad to receive those names. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you, not just about you. We want to know you more personally and intimately. And so through your word, reveal to us more and more about your true nature, that we can with great boldness clearly answer the question, Who is Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. Throughout this epiphany season, that's the question we've been asking. Who is Jesus anyway? And what is the case evidence within the New Testament Gospels that tell us something about who Jesus is? 
So we've been looking at the different stories from Jesus' life and ministry to get a clearer picture of who he is. We, we started off with learning about those foreign officials and scholars who traveled more than a thousand miles from ancient Persia to that little town of Bethlehem to worship this Jewish baby, Jesus, the king of Israel. Why would they do such a thing? We learned about how at his baptism, the heavenly father spoke words of great affirmation for this one being baptized, calling him my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him, he said. Who do you think Jesus is? We saw Jesus go to a wedding in Cana and take normal water and turn it into wine, and not just any old wine, but the very best wine of all, saving that young couple the embarrassment of running out of wine. We saw Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue make the bold claim that he himself was the promised Messiah in fulfillment of the prophecies of, the, of such as Isaiah, who foretold what Messiah would be like. Jesus said, I am he. We saw Jesus cast out demons from people. Who could do that? We saw Jesus do a variety of miracles, including causing a great catch of fish, not at the normal time when you go fishing, but in the middle of the day when nobody catches fish. And after a long night of fishing when the disciples caught nothing and Jesus gave them so many fish, two boats couldn't hold it all. And then he said to the disciples, now you will fish for people. Who do you think Jesus is? We saw Jesus heal so many different people from a variety of diseases. We heard him teach the meaning of life in all of its truth with great authority. Who do you think Jesus really is? And last week, we heard Jesus go to his disciples and say, hey, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Moses, Elijah, other prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter stepped up and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remember that? That whole story serves as the context then for today's story, the story of the transfiguration, because that event from last week happened right before this event. And Luke tells this part of the context before today's story in Luke 9. Luke says, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And at this point, Matthew, in his account, gives us some insights. He says that Peter stepped in at that point and said, Lord, no, no, no. This will never happen to you. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Back to Luke's account. Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. All of that is the context then for today's story, the story of the transfiguration. So we come to Luke 9, verse 28. Let's start there. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, so about eight days after Jesus had asked them, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And by the way, take up your cross and follow me. About eight days later, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Let's pause there for a second. All right, so Jesus has his inner circle of three close associates. Remember, he's got lots of followers, at least 72 that he would send out. From the 72, he chose 12 to be his apostles. And from the 12, he chose these three. Usually, the order that they're mentioned is Peter, James, and John. Uh, Here, Luke lists them as Peter, John, and James. John and James are the brothers and the sons of Zebedee. John gets to move up in the order, I guess. He gets second billing here. Maybe because he's the one that Jesus loved, as he's described. John and James were probably first cousins of Jesus. But Peter, James, and John, John and James, they make up the inner circle of Jesus' close friends. He specifically trains them in a unique way. And Luke tells us that he took them up onto a mountain specifically to pray. And you've heard me underscore this point before, but I want to say it again because I think it's so significant. Here, Jesus, the very Son of God himself, felt it was important to pray to his heavenly Father. If Jesus considered prayer important, shouldn't we, we who are sinners, spend time praying? I want to encourage you to set some quiet time with God aside each day. Don't try to start with an hour You'll get 20 minutes into it and give up. No, start with five minutes. And soon you'll find that isn't enough. You'll hunger for more. Just a little bit of time reading the scriptures, meditating on what it means for your life, and then praying to your Father in heaven. Jesus set the example for us, and he taught his disciples to pray. Now, Luke tells us a little bit later in the story that Peter and his companions were very sleepy. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? Seems to be a pattern with them, doesn't it? It would happen a little bit later again. Jesus would have Peter and John and James with him again in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was to be crucified. He took them with him and asked them to stay awake and to pray with him. And he went off by himself and prayed. And when he came back, they were asleep. Three times that happened. Seems to be a pattern with his disciples. Let me ask you, are you asleep on Jesus? The story goes on. Luke goes on to tell us 
as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It must have been an amazing scene. And Luke goes on to say, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Just get this scene in your mind. There is Jesus and starts radiating this light, bright as lightning flashes. And then appears Moses and Elijah with him and they're talking. Moses and Elijah. Think about that. Moses is the one who 1,500 years earlier was used by God to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses led the exodus after the Passover event. The exodus, the exit out of Egypt. He led them on dry ground through the parted Red Sea safely to the other side. The Egyptian armies were drowned in the waters afterward, you recall. Moses was the one that led the people to Mount Sinai where they received the law of God and were established as a covenant people with God. Moses, the one who led them through the wilderness for 40 years heading toward the promised land of Canaan. Moses would get them just to the edge of Canaan but would not be allowed to go in. As we heard in the epistle lesson or the Old Testament lesson, he was allowed to climb up on Mount Nebo and look over into the promised land, but not allowed to enter. And he died and was buried in Moab. Moses appears with Jesus and they're talking. That must have been a fascinating conversation. And then along with them is Elijah, Elijah the prophet. This is the same Elijah who had witnessed God's showdown with the false prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Remember the story? The prophets of Baal, that false uh, pagan god, created this, this altar, this offering to Baal. And they spent hours and hours, day and night, praying, asking Baal to send fire from heaven to consume this offering they'd made, prepared. And nothing happened. And then Elijah prepared an offering for Yahweh, the Lord. He even made it more interesting. He poured water on it too, just to make it that much more difficult. And he said a very simple prayer, asking Yahweh to send fire from heaven. And boom, it happened. And the entire offering was consumed. And the whole event demonstrated clearly that Yahweh is the true and only God and that Baal didn't really even exist. That's the Elijah that is on the mountain with Jesus. The same Elijah who would, at the end of his life, be taken up into heaven on a fiery chariot, never to experience physical death. Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus having a conversation. It would have been interesting to hear that conversation. Luke is the one who gives us a little snippet of what they were talking about. He tells us that they were speaking with Jesus about his departure. Well, that's how the way it's translated in English, departure. The Greek word in the New Testament is his exodus, his exodus. Interesting, huh? Here's Moses who had led an exodus out of slavery in Egypt. And here's Jesus 
who's about to lead all of humanity out of the slavery to sin. His exodus would accomplish the salvation of the world. His exodus would include a cross, of course, where he would exit this life by dying for the sins of all people. His exodus would include his exiting out of a tomb on that third day, victorious over death, and by his resurrection guaranteeing that all who trust in him will too rise again unto eternal life. His exodus would include his exiting this planet, ascending up into heaven to prepare a place for all who trust in him as their savior. Jesus' exodus is what they were talking about. His exodus that would be brought to its fulfillment, as Luke told us, at Jerusalem. That was Jesus' focus, to come down off that mountain and head toward the cross. You know, by his exodus, Moses set the people free from slavery. And by Jesus' exodus, he sets us free from the slavery to sin. Let me ask you, what is it that you need to be set free from? I know that's bad grammar. What is it that is enslaving your heart, soul, and mind? Jesus is the one who can and does set you free. By his death and his resurrection, he has set you free from anything that would hold you back if you trust in him as your Savior. That's his promise to you. The story goes on and says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke tells us he did not know what he was saying. What's going on here? Well, you could kind of say they were literally having a mountaintop experience with Jesus and Moses and Elijah in all their glory. It was overwhelming for Peter. He says, let's, let's, let's camp out up here on the mountain, Lord. This is just so amazing. Let's build some shelters. Let's just stay up here for a while. It was a mountaintop experience. You know, maybe you've had a mountaintop experience in your faith life. I remember when I was a young boy, every summer, uh, my siblings and I would go to uh, Arrowhead Lutheran Camp up in the mountains above Los Angeles. It was a wonderful week-long experience, singing around the campfire, learning the, the stories of Jesus, and meeting new friends from all over. And at the end of the week of camp, we really didn't want to go home. You know, mom and dad would show up, and they're all excited to see us, and we were, yeah, we're kind of excited to see mom and dad, but we really kind of wanted to stay at camp, you know. We didn't want to go down off the mountain, back down to the valley below with all of the Los Angeles smog and everything else. We kind of wanted to stay at camp. It was a mountaintop experience. Or maybe uh, you had a youth group experience. I've been to several of those national youth gatherings. They are truly wonderful mountaintop experiences. Our kids are going to have a great experience. 
just being stretched in their faith life and understanding of, of God. But the temptation is to want to stay on that mountaintop high. Reality is we got to come back to school, back to work, back to real life, back to the valley. Maybe you've been on a spiritual retreat and it took you to a higher place in your faith walk with God. Or maybe it was a worship experience, a very special worship where you were taken to a higher place in your understanding of who Jesus is. And all of those are wonderful experiences. But our tendency is to do what Peter did. Lord, let's just camp out here. Let's just stay on this mountaintop. We can't do that. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. The story goes on. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. All right, what do we, what do we make from the story of the transfiguration? I want to offer three takeaways from this story. And the first is in answer to the question that we've been dealing with. Who is Jesus? Very clearly from this story, Jesus is nothing less than God our Savior. Jesus is demonstrated to be God and our Savior in this story. The case evidence is clear in this story of the transfiguration. We get a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory as he radiates that Shekinah glory, much like the Old Testament. That glory of God comes out of him. We hear the words of affirmation from the Heavenly Father concerning him. This is my beloved son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And additionally, we have the testimony of an eyewitness who saw all this happen. Peter, later on in his life, in his mature life, he wrote about this incident in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 16 and following. Here's the way it reads. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's laying out the case evidence here. Jesus is God, our Savior. Throughout this series, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? So what would you say? Who do you say Jesus is? From this story, first of all, the first takeaway, Jesus is God our Savior. A second takeaway, if I can say it in kind of a colloquial way, don't camp on the mountaintop. Now, I don't mean literally. Don't camp on the mountaintop. 
Don't do what Peter did. You know, he wanted to build three tents and stay up on that mountain all the time. We really can't do that. When I was a a first-year college student, I was in a singing group that would represent the college. We'd do concerts at various churches around. And and, uh, we, as a group, heard about a new up-and-coming Christian recording artist who was going to be doing a mini-concert at a Christian bookstore in Southern California. And so, as a group, we decided to go to the concert. We got there, and, and this was just a young 17-year-old girl who was starting out and debuting as a Christian recording artist. And it was a great concert. At the end of the concert, I bought uh, her debut record album. She signed it for me. Um, you know, a, a, a little-known recording artist, maybe some of you have heard of her, Amy Grant. <laughs> Pretty big name now, huh? Yeah. During that concert, she sang a song called Mountain Top. And that song is actually on the record album, too. And the chorus of that song, I think, is especially pertinent for our message today. The chorus goes like this I'd love to live on a mountaintop, fellowshipping with the Lord. I'd love to stand on a mountaintop because I love to feel my spirit soar. But I've got to come down from that mountaintop to the people in the valley below or they'll never know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord. Now, to be sure, friends, yes, we need the mountaintop experiences. We need, like this, to come together in worship, to experience God's glory and grace, to experience his forgiving love for us, his empowering spirit to then send us out into the world. But we can't just camp out here. Let's build three tents. No, let's build, what, 97 tents and camp out in the church sanctuary the rest of the week. No, can't do that. We need to go back down into the valley, out into the valley of the sun, where we are called to have an impact for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus had his focus on the cross. He wasn't going to stay on the mountain. He was going to go down into the valley all the way to the cross to give his life that we may have eternal life. And he called his followers to take up their cross and follow him. The second takeaway is don't camp on the mountaintop. And thirdly and finally, it comes from the words of the Father on that event. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. You know, when the Heavenly Father said, listen to him, it wasn't just let some sounds go in one ear and out the other. When he says listen, he means listen and do what he says. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. And what had Jesus just said to his disciples to do? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The words, listen to him, are really a divine call to discipleship, to be a follower of Jesus. This Wednesday, as we mentioned, is Ash Wednesday, the start of the Lenten season. And the 40 days of Lent provide an opportunity for us to go on a journey, if you will, a spiritual journey, a journey to the cross and a journey into a deeper, more meaningful life as we walk in the footsteps 
of Jesus our Savior. The Lenten theme will be from dust to disciples. And we're going to explore what it means to be a disciple of Jesus today in the 21st century. So friends, come, listen to him. Come, take up your...